Hey, it's Catherine. And John. And before we get started today, we just wanted to let you know, this is our last episode of the season. We're going to be taking a short break to put together season two, which will be filled with the stories, music, and art that you have come to love. It's been such a great ride making this first season of radio with y'all, but we need your help. We've spent a year honing this show, sharpening it, and making it better, but that doesn't mean much without your voice. We're not asking for money, we just need your voice. So if you like what you've heard over the past year of this show, please, 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 for the love of waffle fries, share it. Share the episodes you love. Share the whole season if you want. It doesn't take a lot of time. Just copy and paste the links into your Twitter, Facebook, or even just text a link to a loved one that you think might really enjoy these stories. We've covered a lot of ground with these stories through memoirs, interviews, and essays ranging from Everything from race, relationships, family, eating disorders, even immigration. We look to tell the deeper stories behind what we eat. Not what's on the table, but what's under it. And that's why for this season, in lieu of financial support, all we ask of you is that you tell your friends about this show. That's it. So share it with them. We believe that good art should be like good food, readily available, plentiful, and shared with everyone you love. Okay? I think they get it. We can stop preaching now. I, I hope I hope so. Just share the link. <laughs> Dirty-spoon.com. Dirty-spoon.com. Yeah, here's the show. From 103.7 WPVM LP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this might be one of my favorite phrases in the world. Here's the latest from Pedro the Lion. Take that stick You can make 
They say that distance makes the heart grow fonder, and that couldn't be more true than for us here at Dirty Spoon and our founding artistic director, Katra Doza. She moved to Germany a while back. There may be an ocean between us, but every now and then, I still get to wake up to a WhatsApp message, or drawings, or poignant thoughts or observations, even essays. The other morning, I woke up to this lovely little voice memo. Katja used to work at one of North Carolina's best restaurants the late James Beard-nominated Knife and Fork in Spruce Pine. She phoned in the other week with this lovely little story about her first kitchen home. I'm going to tell you a story about a piece of masking tape in the kitchen at Knife and Fork. It stood in faded Sharpie on a disintegrating piece of masking tape. I level when I worked the saute station in my first kitchen. It was always there, a silent observer above that raucous line. Banging pans, dropped plates, screaming poison ivy welts, protesting like fire when the steam from the pasta putt touched them. Server yelling, chef yelling, me yelling, freight train thundering past on its way to somewhere more important than rural North Carolina. It was always noisy. I could always look up. This is a love story, it would remind me. A love story. It wasn't my own story of tired resentment and sore shoulders that I was supposed to be telling. My life was small talk compared to this. Here in front of me was the subtle life of the radishes, swelling underneath black loam, the feeling of tension, of lost, of frost-threatening cotyledons, and the sensual push of those first shoots growing to the rhythm of rain and chickadees. It was a song, an odyssey of the meek overcoming what seemed inevitable. It was a love story. I just had to let myself speak it out loud. And what else but love could have kept us going? At almost 60 hours a week, I was working the least out of our crew and still had enough time to sleep between shifts. I was naive but hungry and enchanted by the fast-paced grace of the kitchen. Luck and a well-timed vulgar joke had gotten me this job despite my lacking any real experience. It seemed that here the only requirement was an idealist's insanity, and I had that in excess. It was never perfect. Like any proper love story, there was a fair share of heartache mixed in. A field rose worth of just-picked spring greens pushed a hair too far back in the refrigerator, where they froze into a slimy pulp. The sudden and unexpected loss of a good friend followed by another only a year later, and the constant fight with aging kitchen equipment. All of this mixed in with the inevitable drama of a staff that spent nearly every waking moment together. It brought complexity to our dishes, sweetness always served with a note of something unexpected, bitterness always complemented by the delicate. The fine thread that held everything in our little restaurant together was our owner's passion and a mutual respect between cooks and farmers. If an early hailstorm shredded the tender new growth of turnips, we would take in the tattered crop and make slow greens or sauce, overcoming the destruction of the leaves and the precision of the cooking method, and leaving only the sharp, bright taste of new growth for the guests to say over. When the summer was favorable, we were presented with the best of the crop, heads of crisp lettuce weeded so carefully that not a single grain of silt was trapped between the leaves. We served them dressed but whole, the image of the farm they had come from. Our single-minded focus on telling the story was exhausting, but there was no time for tiring, so through burnt fingers and cuts we endured. The bustle of the kitchen only a reflection of the persistent cycle of our farms. It wasn't the type of place built for ego. Our selves were unimportant, our hands were the heroes, there to translate what came in from the fields into a language that others could understand. Sunburnt shoulders after a long day's harvest, bare skin resting against warm earth, a salad of bitter greens, sweet tomatoes, lard on vinaigrette. 
Be seasoned with memories and experience, mixing them in with the flavors of the produce. Each dish was tasted, adjusted, and retasted before being sent out with bated breath in the hope that we had managed to present a little bit of summer in between the vegetables. An exquisite glimpse into the story that surrounded us. That was Katrin Doza reading This is a Love Story on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. You can find it, as well as her incredible artwork, on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. It's a daily practice with more than a religious dedication, but for butcher and cook Allegra Grant, it's more than that. Now a member of the highly lauded Koshan 555 tour team, Allegra cut her teeth butchering for the James Beer-nominated Curate in Night Vale here in Asheville, a job that itself turned into a religious experience of sorts. Here's Allegra with Friday Service. Each Friday, I perform an act of service early in the morning, just as the sun peeks over the mountains when I walk into the kitchen. 
Within the past six months, the chef I work for decided to develop a beef butchery program for the restaurant. She made a decision to purchase a four-quarter of beef to utilize between her two restaurants. Throughout the seasonal changes, I have seen the beef program grow into something beautiful. My chef hired highly trained professional butchers from the Asheville area to instruct our management team of chefs how to butcher the four-quarter. With their guided instruction, we have developed the butchery program very quickly and have been utilizing as much of the four-quarter as we can. The beef is dry-aged and we do lose some meat that is near the mold, but we do our very best to utilize all that we can between the bones and beneath the fat. The service I perform and attend each Friday is honest nourishment for my mind, body, and soul as a human being. For nearly two hours, I spend my morning in reflection with the carcass of this forequarter, anchoring my knife against the rib bones and separating the meat to reserve for further creations. These two hours are sacred each and every time because I separate myself from the hustle and bustle of the start of a busy prep day to pay homage to this animal. You might think, wow, two hours is a lot of time devoted to cleaning the bones and fat of a cow. But in actuality, that is not even a fraction of the time that is invested into raising, slaughtering, and butchering ethical meat. Today, as I was cleaning the bones, I thought about where this beautiful beast lived out its last days. Whenever I close my eyes for a brief moment to breathe in the aroma of the aged beef, I can almost smell the grass where this animal laid. It is a perfect image in my mind each Friday morning. To me, it's curious that I'm spending my Fridays in this manner because Jesus sacrificed his body on a Friday. As a Catholic, I abstain from eating meat during Lent on Fridays, which helps me to practice self-awareness and patience to attain greater communion with Christ. It is not required of me to clean the bones as heavily as I choose, but it is what I believe to be honest with myself as a servant of God to do this work. This is my Friday service. That was Olivia Springer reading Allegra Grant's Friday service. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. When Susie Phillips opened Gypsy Queen Cuisine, first as a food truck and later as a brick-and-mortar restaurant, the Lebanese food she served wasn't just an homage to her mother and a childhood spent in Beirut. It was the actual summation of recipes she learned to cook there. Growing up during the Lebanese Civil War, Susie learned to cook in the family's bunker, slipping out to harvest vegetables from the garden or fish from the sea between bombings. John caught up with her on New Year's Eve to find out just what it's like to learn to cook in a war zone. Lebanon, the whole country, Connecticut size or New Jersey size. So it's a little tiny dot, like right on the map. And it's tiny and complicated and intense and beautiful four million christians and four million muslims Muslims. living in the same in that in a state the size of in a country the size of connecticut and it's grown you know the it used to be mostly christian some druze a lot of armenians and some um muslims yeah now well in the 70s, in 19, when, when really it hit to the surface, um, it was in 1975. And that's when the Palestinians were pretty much shoved out of Palestine, Israel now, and had no home. So they migrated to Lebanon, South Lebanon, and then Jordan, which mm-hmm. is the back of Israel now. So... Jordan didn't want any part of it, so they pretty much bulldozered them out of Jordan, and a few were kept, stayed there. But most of South Lebanon was just full of Palestinian refugees. And at once upon a time, people lived peacefully together. You yeah. had the Israelis or the Jewish people, that Israel didn't exist then. And then the Christians, the Druze, the Muslims, everybody was fine next to each other. And then when when it went to a head and the Palestinians had no power and the country was changed thanks to Britain, um, you, you started having these little groups that were angry, 
rightfully yeah. so, PLO was formed um, with anger and no word, danger starts forming and people just don't really care what's going on and they just start killing each other and just wanting a part of a life and a home. So Palestinians were that at then. Now it's two million Syrians. Yeah. In Lebanon, refugees. Quarter of the population yes. is Syrian. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because it's so tiny. So it's such a tiny country. Yeah. And it's holding so many people. And then you still have these little groups of like Hezbollah. You know, they, they take care of their people, but they're vicious. And they were planted in Lebanon sometime in the early 80s, mm-hmm. late 70s from Iraq. Or no, Iran, sorry. And so they basically, Lebanon became a launching pad so Israel can get taken out and Palestine bringing back. And in the process, Syria is above us. And Syrians, they've, they just, it's such a complicated history. Their leaders back to back were killing their people. You know, there's, so we had beef with Syria Palestine or Palestinians at one point and Hezbollah who started calling themselves Lebanese. A country and now, the size of Connecticut yeah. with no good neighbors. No good neighbors. <laughs> and we were caught in the middle. Like we were just like getting bombarded from north, from the from the east. The west is all Mediterranean Ocean and then from the south. So we were screwed. So we reached out to our um, friends in the U.S., uh, Italy and France, and we had all these troops from different countries coming to help us, and nobody, nobody could do anything. Yeah. So, I was born in '72, and immediately, like that's all I remember. Yeah. Waking up to gun gunshots, snipers, bombs. Um, where I lived was somewhat of a safe place. It's not. It wasn't. It was sheltered, kind of, but we definitely got hit a lot of times, too. Yeah. But when when it was on fire, which what we used to say a lot, Beirut's on fire. You go on a, the balcony and you can see Beirut. We lived on like a little mountain overlooking the ocean. Wow. And you can see smoke or fire. or, And then it got really divided, West Beirut and East Beirut. <clears throat> but it's so weird Growing up in that situation, you don't know any better. Yeah. You still live. You never saw the Holiday Inn when it was the Holiday Inn. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I heard. I heard. <laughs> and there, there was so many other like great hotels that my mom would tell me in Beirut. It was Paris of the Middle East. To me, yeah. it's it was the whole time, even with its damaged beauty, the bullets and bombs and ricocheted and like the buildings. It was still beautiful. The culture never left, even though it was no. the buildings did. They they lived more. Yeah, you know. At, so when it's quiet, and sometimes it can be quiet for days or months, and sometimes it can be just quiet for an hour, and you took advantage of that hour or a day, and you went out and you ate. We picnicked. You know, we went to the beach, and you just learn how to adjust and live around that. Literally coming out of the bunker to go to the... Literally. Wow. Yeah. I remember one time, we spent a lot of time in the shelter here and there. And we kind of started running out of food in the shelter, but the house is right above. And my mom would take every little second that it was quiet and run upstairs and get whatever we needed, lentils, rice, or, you know, more water, or what have you. You never knew how long it was going to take. Yeah. So it was, uh, it's an experience that I will never trade. When did, when did, so how long were, did you live in that? How, how, when did you finally? We left in 88. Oh, wow. So. So that's after the embassy bombing. Oh, after, yeah. 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 I have a cousin that still lives, uh, I mean, that works for the American embassy. And he was there when it happened. Really? Mm-hmm. He had oh just gotten out. He, they just picked up some some American soldier just came in and they were taking him somewhere else. And as soon as he left, it just went boom. 
Man, yeah, because that was the... It happened with the embassy and then the airport right after, right? Yeah, and then the airport was shut down. Ah. And this was in the 80s, in the early 80s. Wow. Yeah, around Thanksgiving time. Yeah. But my dad's American, so I have the American citizenship immediately. I don't even have my Lebanese citizenship. They're not giving mm. out any. And it's basically who your dad is. So if your dad, that's who you are. So I'm American, oh, even wow. though I really totally consider myself Lebanese. So during that time, we always kept our options open of escaping. And uh, my brother and I have American citizenship. So once in a while, we'd have to go to West Beirut to the American embassy before it got bombed and get our passports renewed and our papers. So to go to West Beirut, we had to go through Syrian and Palestinian checkpoints and visibly, you can tell who's Christian and who's not. Yeah. Clearly, immediately by the way you dress right. and how you carry yourself. My mom, being a beautiful woman, she was a superstar. She looked like a movie star. She would um, hide us in the car. We laid down behind the seats on top of one another, my brother and I. And she would cover us with bags of bulgur parsley <laughs> tomatoes so it seems that she's taking groceries and she would flirt her way through every checkpoint oh, and luckily yeah. we yeah it, it, we never got caught but she had a palestinian friend in west beirut that she would take food for and she lived if you can imagine those buildings that just have no glass it's apartment buildings it's just laundry lines with clothes hanging right. to dry and bullet holes everywhere and she's just you know living with no furniture hardly or anything so she'd take her food and then get us back out and we did that a few times wow your mother grew up in palestine right no my mom grew up in lebanon okay yeah but she did make it to palestine with a friend as a runway she was a housemaid, pretty much, at a very young age, and she got taken advantage of by the generals that she worked for. Mm. And she couldn't tell her parents because they threatened her life and her family. They were from a very poor, poor household. Mm. So her and her friend that worked in the same place that were both getting sexually abused decided to walk to Palestine where her family was and they did they escaped mm -hmm. and my mom used to tell me how that's why her, the reason her dad died because of her, her a heartache like she, there's no phones you know you can't she didn't she's illiterate she never went to school she immediately went into work for people so yeah that's when she went to Palestine and we revisited Palestine in 85 for Christmas oh really and that was whew. That was intense. Yeah. I mean, the this woman had, and that's all we know, is to have those too. Like, there's no fear. No fear. And uh, my brother told me this story not too long ago. And I didn't know this because I was, I'm five years younger than him. But he told me we used to have a gardener. We had a really nice house in Lebanon. So we had two gardeners. Um, a beautiful garden that we had chickens, we everything we needed. We didn't really need to go to the store. So this one gardener lived in West Beirut, and she would take him food and money sometimes when they're out. So my brother told me that she would smuggle also M16s. She she had she was working with some Lebanese militia. Whoa. I'm like, are you kidding me, mommy? <laughs> How much more of a bad she can be, this woman, really? And and she held it all together. Like, I would have never known. But yeah, he told. He's like, yeah, she was, she's crazy. And we were in the in the car with her. Oh my god! Again, covered with parsley and tomatoes and bulgur. Like, yeah, she's gonna go make tabbouleh for of people. <laughs> but you know, throughout all these intertwining threads of this amazing blanket there's food yeah of and course. that's what kept us together yeah 
always. So, growing up, pretty much cooking in a bunker. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, we definitely had a kitchen set up down there. We had a kitchen that was really a nice big kitchen. She, I mean, I would wake up to smells every day. This woman started cooking when she woke up and stopped cooking when we all went to bed. Yeah. And that's just runs in our veins. Everybody does that. It's not just her. Every household, everybody, every man, every woman know know how to cook and love it. Yeah. Is there like a big French influence on the cuisine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Where does that show up? So it shows up more in the preparation of detail. Um, OCD-ness, <laughs> butter. <laughs> Mise en place. Yes, yeah. And, you know, the, a lot of bechamel sauces, too, that oh, wow. that you see more in households and not so much in restaurants. We hardly went to restaurants. Yeah. We did when we were out, you know, in the mountains um, just for, you know, a drive, and we would stop at a restaurant next to a river and... You, I don't remember being menus either. It's just meza. Well, it was a war zone. Yeah, but <laughs> still. <laughs> still, it's like you sit down and it's the usual. It's meza. Just bring it out. Little plates after little plates after little plates of chicken, hummus, dips, salads, veggies. Um, yeah, there's that goat and lamb hanging there that we're having that meat from immediately yeah. you know it's just fish lots of fish it's so good like we the sheep we have there is completely different than the sheep that's here the fat from the tail is consumed raw with onions and raw liver oh wow these things i used to eat like popcorn yeah i'm having a hard time thinking i would eat them now just because i've been so out of it for so long yeah but I'll try it. You know, it's everything raw, raw offals and raw meat and raw veggies. And that's what you eat. And it's delicious. When's the last time you went back to Lebanon? 98. Oh, wow. Yes. Been a while. So it was really hard for us to go yeah. because it's really expensive. And when you're there, you're not going for a week or even two. Right. You're going for months, yeah. one or two. And... Losing everything in Lebanon, we had basically $5,000 and a suitcase full of clothes coming here. It was, And my mom being illiterate, she couldn't get work. Mm. She babysat mostly. And my brother was here before us, and he was into diving. So that was his profession, teaching diving. Um, very young, and I couldn't get a job when I was here, really. So it was hard for us, money-wise. So in 98, we went back. We saved and went back for a little over a month. And I've been just dreaming of going back. And it's most likely going to happen in June. Oh, wow. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. My brother, I'm taking my niece too and i and we're gonna go i might go for two months oh wow and when i go i'm i'm apprenticing in a bakery somewhere really mm-hmm. awesome because i suck at it <laughs> i'm a horrible baker i hate it but <laughs> don't, don't even try that bread that's my terrible <laughs> bread that i bake <laughs> it's oh. just so precise you know and like writing recipes for gypsy queen was a heartache and a headache and almost impossible having this guy pinch here, a pinch there. Mommy, how much water goes into the rice? Well, just dip your finger in the first line above your nail is where it should hit, you know? Or, yeah, it's it's like a pinch that fits in the palm of your hand. Okay, (laughs) how are you going to translate that? Different palms, you know? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, the amount of bulgur to that goes into bully is a handful. Literally, you reach into this bag of bulgur and you reach and count how many parsley bunches to how many bulgur bunches, handfuls you should put in there. <laughs> yeah. So baking is going to be 
pretty challenging for me, but I really want to learn how to make sage bread, how to make um, pita bread. And I don't know. It's still a dream that, hey, I want to have an authentic Middle Eastern bakery. Yeah. I mean, it had to be. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? Uh, 16. 16. Just, so. just almost 16. Yeah. Four months shy. That's a really rough time to be just like ripped out from all your friends. Uh, and You know, I, all I wanted was to get out. Yeah. And when I came here, all I wanted was to go back. Yeah. It's funny how that works. And then we came here and in my mind, you know, watching Top Gun and all these American movies and <laughs> Dynasty and all all of that I'm like oh America's great it's just gonna be a bunch of blondes with blue eyes and it's gonna be a good time and I come to Stewart Florida (laughs) what the (laughs) please take me back like people because it was in the late 80s and early 90s Lebanon had a really bad reputation and still does you know all you see on media is the bad things so yeah. I was immediately a terrorist. I rode a camel and I lived in a tent. And I was just, I'm not black, I'm not white, and yeah. I'm not accepted by anyone. Yeah. You know, my friends were the foreign exchange students. And it, it, it sucked really bad. I don't know. I can't, I keep, in my mind, I keep coming back to the dichotomy it must have been to be in a place that is war-torn but is also a place that i mean it doesn't sound like you guys were unhappy we weren't we weren't it's it's crazy yeah so i told you where we lived we didn't really get hit that hard Mm -hmm. but we definitely spent a lot of time because they were close you know you hear that yeah you don't know how close it is you just stay in I remember telling you the story about fishing. Oh, yeah. And you loved it. Let's go into that one. Tell me about fishing. So I was such a tomboy, too. So I hung out with the men. Any hunting things we had to do. So fishing. Um, We made made little explosions (laughs) that we threw in the water (laughs) and killed the fish. And then we went diving for them. So the men, you know, they would do these... Little TNT. Yeah. <laughs> and at the crack of dawn before, before like the MPs were doing their rounds of just making sure everybody's okay, we'd go out um, to shore. And there, each shore kind of has a bunch of rocks put down so you can walk further in the water. Yeah. Um, so that's what we do. We'd go in there and we'd throw it in. Light it up, throw it in, boom, and then wait a little bit. As soon as the sun comes out, you go diving. And I, I had no mask. Um, One-piece suit is very important for this because when you see those little shiny things on the ground of the water, the dead fish, you just put as many in your bathing suit as you can. And, you know, I got scratched from the the little spiky things on fish <laughs> right the yeah. spines yeah and uh, we'd go on shore empty our bathing suit and go back for more and that memory and then you know i would clean the fish scale it gut it with my mom and fry it that same day and <laughs> it was awesome it was great i would love to do that again fishing with dynamite <laughs> fishing with dynamite how crazy is that like really you should try that in the lakes out here see how it goes <laughs> Are you going to get me out of jail? Because I still get frisk hardcore (laughs) at airports. We we wouldn't have to, like, use real dynamite. You could probably get away with a cherry bomb. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's meth labs around. Surely there's other worse things happening. It's true. It's true. No one would notice. No one would catch you. No. Although explosions are a little less common here than they were in Beirut at the time, I think. Yeah. (laughs) We can start a tradition. (laughs) Fishing with dynamite. Winter fishing. That was John talking to Gypsy Queen founder Susie Phillips. You can find the full interview, where Susie gets much more in-depth about the finer points of providing affordable food in Asheville, 
the difficulty of pulling off legit Lebanese food in America, and even tells a story of a fighter plane that fell on her neighbor's house, all on our website, dirty-spoon.com. You threw your books into the river Told your mom that you're a non-believer She said she wasn't surprised But that doesn't make it okay You say nobody loves a city Nobody loves what can't love them back One-way ticket in your pocket What happened to the charm of a small town? If you find what you're looking for Be sure to send a postcard You promised you'd never forget The little ones when you got Jordana Rosenfeld has been talking about race all year. Writing for The Nation, her journalism has covered police shootings, protests, and conspiring hate groups. But she also found the seeds of racism in a rather unexpected spot, in our bread. Here's Courtney DeGennaro Robinson reading Jordana's story, Dark Crusts. There were so many things about working at a bakery that I loved. The marvel of creating such vast quantities of food. Several hundred pounds of cookie dough and muffin batter each week. Several hundred loaves, baguettes, dense and flavorful sourdough, braided challah, seeded fougasse, pan-bound loaves of French bread. Well, really just our baguette dough rolled into another form. The sense of accomplishment that came from turning water from the tap, yeast from the walk-in fridge, and flour from the white-wheeled trash cans under our work table into hundreds of loaves of bread. The way that making fresh bread is a never-ending task. There's always a market for fresher bread. Each afternoon, hour, and day brings with it renewed potential for freshness. 
how strong I felt hoisting 50-pound bags of flour onto the table, slitting the paper bag with a bread knife and pouring it into the plastic can below. Even though my body ached nearly every day from this labor, it was essentially my only form of exercise. There were also things about working at a bakery that I merely tolerated. The early hours, the heat that ensured my constant sweat, the customer service. Although I was hired to bake, I often pitched in to cover last-minute absences at the front counter. I liked it because it was less physically strenuous than baking, and I got paid my comparatively higher baker's wage to do it. Most of our customers were excellent. Kind, if not friendly, then at least efficient, good at communicating their desires. Some customers had corny jokes they repeated ad nauseum. Some had subtly fat-phobic comments about how they'd never be able to maintain their weight if they had my job. I smiled and laughed because it was my job. Most of our customers weren't especially picky, but some were. Well aware that it was also my job to cater to customer specifications rather than judge them, I nonetheless began to notice a disturbing pattern among our choosy customers. I realized that when it came to any one of our offerings, from the meticulously laminated croissants to the streusel-topped apple tarts to every style of our loaves, there existed an outspoken customer contingent that wanted their baked goods to be of the palest hue. Can I get five of your lightest croissants? The first time I heard the request from the earnest face of one of our regular customers, an older white woman in a Patagonia down jacket with reading glasses perched on her nose and gemstones on her fingers and ears, I was baffled. Lightest, like, in terms of weight? I asked, unclear as to why someone would want to get a pastry with less mass given that we don't price by weight. No, like, not dark. I don't like those darker ones. To my eye, there was no great variation in our croissant color. They all looked golden brown. My hand hovered over a pastry as I tilted the tray down so she could see it. Is this one good? Yes, and the one right next to it. Sometimes I'd already packaged a customer's order when they would open it and say, Oh, I I don't want this loaf. It's too dark. I invariably replaced it and kept my scorn to myself. It turns out that this desire for light-colored baked goods is not unique to my old bakery. Dark-crusted bread is a novelty in this country, says master baker Mark Furstenberg of Washington, D.C.'s Bread First Bakery, who is often credited with introducing European-style breads to the area. Furstenberg reports incessant complaints from customers that he's overcooking his bread or baking dark. According to the founder of Zingerman's Delicatessen, Ari Weinsvig, One of my longest-running challenges has been to persuade people that dark-crusted breads are better. From a selling standpoint, they usually spell doom. Americans have been led to believe over the years that darker crusts are undesirable, a sign of a bad baker pawning off overbaked loaves on an innocent consumer. Dozens of bakers around the country, as well as countless Zingerman staffers, have told me that customers just won't buy darker loaves. Bread could be considered dark because it's baked with darker colored flour, such as whole grain, rye, pumpernickel, or teff flours, or because the loaf has spent more time in the oven. My anecdotal experience is that white bread sells so much better than dark bread that one shouldn't even bother producing the same amount of each, and that even, or perhaps especially, when it comes to two otherwise identical loaves of white bread, the loaf with the lighter crust is considered more desirable. Is there actually a meaningful, qualitative difference between light-crusted bread and dark-crusted bread? Someone may prefer a lighter crust if they require a softer, less crunchy bread experience. It's true that not everyone has the bite required to tear into a crusty dark loaf, insofar as more time in the oven renders a crust more tough. Bakers who prefer darker-crusted bread often argue it's more flavorful. In the case of fermented breads like sourdough, darker bakes could be more flavorful because the longer fermentation period allows grains to release all their sugars, providing for a caramelized crust. This argument does reinforce the perception that there's a significant taste difference between dark and light crusts. Despite those points, it's likely the most significant difference between light and dark crusts has to do with perception rather than empirical reality. There is the perception that oven-darkened items are burnt and therefore higher in carcinogens. It's valid to want to avoid eating burnt food. The problem there is that an item set out for sale at an established bakery is almost certainly not burnt. 
I find it incredibly hard to believe that a professional baker or bakery owner would ever choose to sell burnt bread. Bread's just not that expensive to make, and all of the bakers I know are fastidious in their pursuit of high-quality loaves. To me, accusations that dark-crusted bread is burnt evidence the intense strength of our collective aversion to darker-baked goods. Many consumers view darker crusts as so undesirable that they conflate perfectly good, darker loaves with inedible loaves. The most significant reason, in my opinion, that customers tend to perceive lighter-colored bread more positively than darker-colored bread, since it's impossible for anything human to exist outside of the value systems we've built to structure our world, is the pernicious influence of white supremacy. Differences in bread consumption have long mapped onto hierarchies of power. Historian Aaron Bob Rouse Strain, in his book on the history of white bread, writes, In most times and places throughout history, the social order of bread arrayed itself in a spectrum from lightest, whitest, and most wheaten for elites, to darker, chewier, and more admixed loaves for the rest. This distinct relationship between bread and power means that certain types of bread can easily become associated with certain types of people. In American society, our hierarchies of power have always been racialized, with light-skinned people at the top and dark-skinned people at the bottom. There's significant historical precedent for projecting racism and xenophobia onto bread. Some historians argue that the initial popularity of Wonder Bread, for example, was propelled by anti-immigrant anxieties. At the turn of the 20th century, most bread was produced by local bakeries. By the 1930s, most Americans bought bread made in factories. That shift was propelled in large part by concerns about hygiene. Earlier in the century, local bakeries were often staffed by recent immigrants from Southeast or Eastern Europe who were perceived as unclean. As factory-made white bread like Wonder Bread was gaining in popularity, writes Bob Rowstrain, it would have been almost impossible to escape the message conveyed by food advertising, scientific studies, political cartoons, foreign correspondents, and even church sermons that only savage peoples and unwashed immigrants ate dark, dense bread. White bread was even said to Americanize new immigrants into the U.S. Wonder Bread bears slightly different connotations today, but our fundamental white supremacist structures have not changed, and neither has the relationship between bread and power. Given the racist history of white bread and its long-standing negative biases against dark bread, it seems quite likely that people continue to apply a white supremacist lens in which light equals good and dark equals bad to today's bread. This logic also appears to live on in today's Americans' poultry preferences. Americans markedly prefer white meat chicken and turkey to dark meat, according to Slate, NPR, and Forbes, although perceptions of white meat's nutritional superiority are not borne out by scientific evidence. Additionally, a growing body of scientific evidence suggests that, when it comes to food, our expectations generate our reality. Perceptions of food, often based on color and appearance, have a significant impact on our experience of taste and flavor, according to the journal Flavor, which reports, Color is the single most important product intrinsic sensory cue when it comes to setting people's expectations regarding the likely taste and flavor of food and drink. According to this article, these pre-consumption expectations are automatic, occurring on the level of implicit bias. What some view as taste-based preference, and therefore exempt from moral scrutiny, may in fact be a psychological bias. The customer who claims to prefer light crusts simply because they taste better than dark crusts could very well be operating on a psychological bias unconsciously adopted over a lifetime of exposure to a white supremacist culture. If it's true that white supremacy inflects more of our decision-making than we know or care to know, what then? While my first impulse is always to validate all people's lived experiences and any resultant preferences, my second impulse is to ask, why? Is someone's preference less valid if it's based on racist logic? If our goal is to build an anti-racist society, then the answer has to be yes. How would operationalizing that conclusion change our relationship to our food? from your worry The 
selling blanks down at the DMZ The banking on the sound and fury Makes you wonder what it all's got to do with me Bloodless for now least the ones who claim to have the answers it's an uncivil war it's an uncivil war it's an uncivil war Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. And the incredible art on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Paul Choi, and Garnet Fisher. Music in this episode by Pedro the Lion, Quivers, Lucy Dacus, Andrew Bird, David Axelrod, JBM, Nostalgia 77, Clint Mansell, Aphex Twin, Ian William Craig, and Heinbach. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large. Handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories. 
Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. This is actually our final episode of the season. So if you like what you heard, you can stream all of our episodes on our website, dirty-spoon.com, or on your SoundCloud app. Thanks so much for a great first season. We'll see you in the spring with season two of Dirty Spoon Radio Hour right here on WPVMLP in Asheville, bringing you more stories from the people who shape what we consume.